It is a wonderful blessing to join our hearts uh, together, whether you're in your home uh, or here, gathered as we begin on-site worship. Uh, It is a blessing to be able to see uh, some faces, I should say see parts of faces uh, this morning, but uh, God will continue to guide us and be faithful to us as we seek uh, Him. Uh, If you were to identify the, the five most important essentials of the Christian faith, what would those five essentials be? What would you write down? What would you say the five most important characteristics of of a Christian uh, would be? If you were to boil it down to three, what what would the three most important essentials be for a a Christian life that is growing, that is flourishing, that is growing and, and maturing? What would those three be? If you were to narrow it down even more to one essential characteristic, this is the most important Characteristic to define the people of God, what would you say that one essential ingredient is? Well, we are in Matthew. We're continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in chapter 22. And Jesus is essentially asked that question. What's most important for the life of faith? What is foundational without which you cannot have faith? You cannot stand. The question is, what's the great commandment. And not only does Jesus answer the question, but he even narrows it to really a one word. He's able to capture the essence of a life of discipleship and a life after him uh, with with one word, one command. So it's Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 34. Listen now to God's word. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, the word that I was referring to is the word love. We see it a couple times in this passage in Jesus' response. That English word love is a very popular word. Uh, probably more books have been published on that theme of love, uh, more songs sung about it, more poems written on the theme of love than any other theme. So it's a popular word. We might say it a lot. We might hear it a lot. It's also a very dangerous word because it can be used very loosely, thrown around very casually. Uh, From the same person, from the same lips, a person will express their uh, fondness for a piece of clothing, a pair of shoes, uh, a jacket, a pair of jeans. And they'll use the same word to express their affection, their deep affection and love for their spouse or adoration for their God. Is this the same kind of love that we're talking about? I love my wife. I love my God. I love that pair of jeans. Well, as we hear Jesus answer this question about what's the great commandment pointing us to two Old Testament texts, which we will consider, both of which are centered on the theme of love, we should note, it raises questions. 
What defines this love? Does everyone in the world possess this love? They just need to turn the switch to turn it on. Where does this love come from? So questions are surfaced. One of the places that we hear about love often is at a wedding. And one of the texts that you often hear at a wedding, uh, we may have had it read in our uh, wedding, uh, is 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, It's an important uh, text. You could turn there if you would like. It's a beautiful description that gives aspects and uh, a description of of love, helpful for us in understanding what fills this word love that, that Jesus is pointing us to. We hear these words in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It is kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul, in a way, reflecting the emphasis that Jesus is placing and pointing us to these two commandments in the Old Testament. Love comes to the top. Love is patient. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. I think it's fair to say this kind of love is hard, very hard. It does not come naturally. In fact, I would offer that this love is so difficult, it is impossible to obtain apart from a divine act of the Lord God himself. This is what 1 John 3 says. Whoever loves has been born of God. Whoever loves has been born of God. To have this love, one must be birthed of God, born of God, have new life. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes these words. We sang about it in one of our hymns. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic power, and understand all knowledge, and have faith to remove mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. I can give away all I have. I can deliver up my body, Paul says, to be burned. This tremendous devotion, but have not love. Love, I gain nothing. Not only is this a kind of love that not all people possess, that a person doesn't necessarily have this love, But it's so essential to life that Paul here can say, if one doesn't have it, they are nothing. They gain nothing. They are mere noise. And that you could possess all of these other things and have not love. No wonder our Lord, when he is asked, what's the great commandment? Points us to not only one, but two, both centered on love. He's pointing us to the central ingredient for true life and faith. We think about commandments that are revealed in the scriptures. Often it is the case that commandments are seen as things that people must do and are called to do. That is true. But here we see commandments that point us to what we need in our lives. We need this. We must possess this. 
So we're told in verse 34 and 35 in the context that as a result of the Pharisees, as we have seen repeatedly seeking to discredit and undermine the Lord's ministry and his influence as it is growing, they seek to trap him, they seek to test him. So it says, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, this is an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's unique about our Lord's response is that is not that he says something new. What's most important? What's the great commandment? He doesn't uh, create or surface a new command, but rather a very old command. The uniqueness of Jesus' response here is, number one, he decides to fuse two commandments together as being inseparable. That, that really you can't have one without the other. And we see the second one flows out of the first. And two, he elevates these two commands above all the rest. Others have spoken about love, the importance of love. He elevates these. These are most important. And they both center on love. So look at verse 37. His response, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus is not only in answer to the question reaching back to an old command, but this would have been, for many if not the majority, uh, the most familiar text in the Old Testament to them. In Deuteronomy, prayed twice a day by devout Jews, the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6. So he responds not with something new, but what, what, what's very familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. His response is in Old Testament text. Of all the hundreds of commandments revealed in the Old Testament that Jesus could choose, that reflect the character of God, that reflect the life and pursuit of holiness... This is the one that Jesus shines the most light upon. It's kind of like the Mount Everest of Old Testament commands. It's the highest. It's the grandest. It's going to demand the most from a person. This is not a Sunday-only kind of command or a devotional time-only kind of command. It's all-consuming and all-demanding. Notice the language. All your heart, all your soul, all your might. And isn't it interesting, so noteworthy, that the greatest command is first rooted not in one's actions or behaviors or what one does, but in what one desires. It's remarkable. So important in what a person takes delight in. The command is love. Love the Lord. It's just easier to do something. Just tell me what I need to do, the behavior I need to carry out, than it is to awaken a desire, a delight, an affection in our hearts. You might say to me, Pastor, I would like you to go and stack two quarts of wood. I've got wood, it needs to be stacked. I might not want to hear those words, but I could go and do it. 
I could go and stack two quarts of wood. But if you said to me, Pastor, I got two quarts of wood, I want you to stack it with joy in your heart. You've just raised the bar, right? You're getting to a place of attitude in my heart, how I'm going to do this, how I'm going to feel about this. Children, your parents might say to you, it's time to get ready for bed. I want you to go and brush your teeth. And you could go, hopefully you do, and get ready for bed and go and brush your teeth. But if your parents said to you, it's time for bed, I want you to get ready, go brush your teeth with gladness in your heart. With gladness in your heart. They just raised the bar. Now they're asking for you to do it with a certain attitude of your heart. John Piper, in his book, The Dangerous Duty of Delight, uh, says, throughout Scripture we are commanded to feel, not only to think and decide. Our Lord commands us to have affections. Now think about those commands. Be joyful always, continually, 1 Thessalonians 5. Or from 1 Peter 2, love one another earnestly from the heart. Uh, We are called to mourn and to have sorrow with those who mourn. We're called to fear our God. What a gift it is that God not only commands our actions, but commands our affections and our heart. He desires to be Lord, not only of what we do, the behaviors we carry out, godly behaviors, but where that's coming from, that we delight in Him, in our hearts. This love does not originate within people. It's birthed and planted in people, like the grace of God, like faith as a gift. That's how love comes to the people of God. It's birthed in us. It's very much like a garden. A garden's ability and hope for flourishing and bearing fruit is only the result of someone planting seeds in the soil. And that's what happens to the Christian. God plants the seed of love and his grace in that person's life. So a person can only have this love for God if it is planted within. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And so this is why those words that precede the text that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy are so important. In our confession, it's entitled, The Preface to the Ten Commandments. What comes before these commands, but what comes before the Decalogue in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is, I have acted in your life. I have delivered you. I have set my love and choice and affection upon you. And it's a a result of that that we then respond with love for God. And what is this love? How would we define this love that Jesus is speaking about, that he is referring to from Deuteronomy? The the New Testament Greek word that he uses is uh, agapesis, agapao, where we get that agape love. We've heard of that agape love. It is distinguished. It has some commonalities, but it is distinguished from that love between two friends uh, or the natural love that a parent, a mom or dad will have toward their child or that intimate love that a, a, a husband and wife share with each other. In surveying the Gospels, here's what one theological dictionary says about 
Jesus' use of this word love. Jesus demands love with an exclusiveness, meaning that all other commands lead up to it and all righteousness finds in it its norm. This love demands a readiness for God and for God alone in an unconditional manner. It means to base one's whole being on God, to cling to him with unreserved confidence, to leave with him all care or final responsibility, to live by his hand. It is to despise all that does not serve God nor come from him, to break with all other ties, to cut away all that hinders, to snap all bonds except that which binds to God alone. So this love is total. It is a total commitment. It demands the totality of one's life. And so that's why it says, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And that makes sense. Because it is a love in response to the radical and total love that God has poured out for his people through his son Jesus Christ on the cross and the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. God has acted in a total committed love for his people. And of course we see that this is a very personal and relational love. It's not a love that is aimed in a general direction. Love the Lord your God. That's why we pray, our Heavenly Father. He is our Father. He is your God. J.C. Ryle says, Love is the grand secret of true obedience to God. When we feel towards Him as children feel towards a dear Father, we shall delight to do His will. If you're a mom or dad who's had young uh, children, this has probably happened to you. It's happened to me a few times when our children were even younger. Uh, You're at the grocery store, perhaps at the checkout line, and uh, you realize that your child has lost sight of you. You see them, but they don't see you anymore. They don't don't know where you're at. And, And they're in a little bit of a panic. They're feeling lost, but you see them. And so they're looking for, for you. And in an effort, they actually put their arms around the leg of another person in a different line. They're, they're thinking at that moment that they've found mom or dad until you see them look up at the face of this other person and there's a bit of shock. I'm still lost. They've found somebody, but it's not their mom. It's not their dad. There is one true living God that we were made to be in relationship with. Our Heavenly Father, it is, He is our God. And what a blessing that is for us. We were made for that personal relationship with the living God. Love the Lord your God. Do you delight in the Lord your God? Do you have a love for Him? Are there competing loves in your life vying for your heart's affection and attention. That place of which God alone is to occupy. So there is, in Jesus' response, this very strong vertical thrust. He goes to Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God. It's rooted vertically, and yet Jesus provides this second command, which is like the first. 
because love for God, according to our Lord, according to Jesus, is evidenced on the horizontal plane. Not just from Jesus' lips, we see it both in the Old and New Testament in very powerful, poignant ways. So Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? And yet the second is so closely tied in his mind to the first that he does not respond to the question with one great command. There's one great commandment, but so important, so alike is the second that the first is really proven by it. Verse 39. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, Jesus goes back into the Old Testament from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 is where he quotes from. I don't know if you've ever been asked by someone, uh, what book of the Bible would you point me to to get a grasp of the Christian faith? Oftentimes we're encouraged to point people to the Gospel of John, to the Gospel of Mark, and those probably are wonderful, great choices. But I don't know if anybody's ever said, you need to go read Leviticus first. That's where you need to go. And understandably so. But remarkable that of the two great commandments that Jesus refers, one is from the book of Leviticus. The whole theme of Leviticus is about the holiness of God and the unrighteousness unrighteousness and the impurity of the people of God and their need to be cleansed and their need to pursue a holy life. It makes sense. Jesus points people to this command. Leviticus 19, you you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Remember in Luke chapter 7, the woman who anointed Jesus and our Lord's words in response. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Love flows out of a heart that has received forgiveness, that has been loved by God. Jesus knows the real test of our love is going to be in the ordinary, normal interactions with people we have every day. It's much easier to embrace the idea of love or perhaps to love people we don't know, the the distant, those people out there. But here it's love of neighbor that Jesus speaks about, those that we interact with those in our sphere of influence. And so he's emphasizing the importance of our normal, ordinary interactions that we have every day. And that's part of what makes Christians and the church so powerful is how we take the ordinary, normal conversations and interactions with people and redeem them and see God's hand at work in those to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. Almost every professing believer would agree that Jesus' words here in Matthew 22 are of great importance. And yet, I want to point out some dangers, three dangers about these commandments. I have seen them in my own Christian experience and life. Three dangers to be aware of. These are alive and well in our society. They are alive and well 
in, in the lives of professing believers in churches all around. And, and we need to be aware of them. The first danger is putting the second commandment that Jesus mentions before the first. It happens. It is happening. When love of man begins to emerge as one's highest aim, it ultimately leads to humanism. And not of the good sort. Man becomes the ultimate object of honor and praise. What man thinks he needs becomes the goal, rather than what God knows man needs. What we see revealed in the scriptures. It's a danger to be aware of. To rightly love man, to rightly serve man, according to his greatest needs, love must be rooted in God, in his word, and for his glory. That is, to be sure, part of what distinguishes us as Christians from the world. The second danger in these two commands to look out for is actually seeking to live out the first, absent of the second. We might call it a false kind of piety. We've already considered this second great command, love neighbor as oneself. But throughout the scriptures we see it is love demonstrated through care, affection, mercy, the telling of truth, the truth of the gospel, toward others that is evidence of true life in God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The third danger in seeking to pursue the first and second great commandments is to do that, is to seek to do that apart from a pursuit after the Word of God. A growing understanding and application of what God has revealed to us. It's an amazing statement, verse 40, that Jesus says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The, the whole Old Testament, indeed, we can say the whole Word of God, rests on this kind of foundation here. These two commands are, in essence, a kind of rock or foundation. Everything hangs upon these. Everything sits and rests upon them. But it's the foundation. It's not the whole house. Everything hangs upon them, but these two are not the whole. The Bible is the whole revelation of God to us. The Bible, in that sense, is the whole house. We could put it this way. People live on foundations. They don't live in them. And so to live out these two commands, to apply these two commands, to know what does love of God mean? What does love of neighbor mean? 
requires a continued pursuit after God's revelation and the application of it in our lives. It's not an ambiguous, general kind of love of God and love of neighbor. It's worked out here for us. In these words, Jesus gives us a foundation. He gives us a rock upon which to stand. And we need that kind of foundation because we live in a world full of wind and storm, insecurities, instability, uncertainty. Uh, We have seen it in the last few months with the pandemic around the world. We have seen the kind of uncertainty and instability that can surface in a nation as we look at our own country in the last couple of weeks with protesting, people expressing unrest and feeling troubled, disturbed within. We are reminded we live in a world full of brokenness, pain, hurt, suffering. And and what is the remedy? What is the Christian's response? What is the remedy to such a world? The love of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a sufficient foundation to live in this broken world. It is the gospel. It is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that tells the world of their need and our need for his love and his forgiveness. That nothing ultimately will create peace in the heart of man like being reconciled to Almighty God. Nothing will rid bitterness and resentment like the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, his transforming grace through his Son. Being loved by him enables one to move toward others. The gospel and the cross also tells us of our need to forgive others, to see others, even enemies, the way Christ Jesus saw us. We who were once enemies, Paul said in Romans 5, By God's grace, we were brought near to him. The gospel and the cross of Christ, a man without sin or one act of wrongdoing, yet crucified, reminds us of this fallen and depraved world in which we live. We seek to advance the kingdom of our God, his justice, his righteousness, and his mercy But this world, this world, ultimately will never satisfy the human heart. We were made for another world. The gospel of our Lord tells us that while there are many stories and there are many narratives that the world seeks to write and tell, it is the story of our God which is the true story and the one that we are called to tell. A story of this loving and merciful just and holy God, who is and who will restore all things. And the gospel tells us that the way to healing is through suffering. Through the love and suffering of God himself. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And by his wounds, we are healed. More than anything, people need the grace and love of God in their heart. That's a love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul. It demands my life. It demands my all.
Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, how we thank you for the gift of your love born in our hearts by your wonderful grace and mercy. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us to express love for you. The perfect object of praise and adoration. And that as we love you, Lord, you fill our hearts with joy and with gladness. You satisfy our hearts, even in the midst of all kinds of feelings of uncertainty or brokenness, pain, injustice, whatever the feelings we may have, Lord, whatever may be happening in this world. We thank you that you point the eyes of our heart upon you to satisfy us, to give us peace, to give us clarity in our minds, to serve you, to serve your kingdom in this, your world. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us in loving our neighbor as ourself. We thank you for your love, O Lord, that though we were once enemies, you engaged, you drew near to us. And we pray, Lord, that your church would indeed be demonstrating love. Yes, mercy, and indeed the telling of the truth of the gospel that the hearts of people might be set free. Continue to guide us as your people, Lord, in this season, as we trust in you, uh, as we care and love one another. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.